it seems to me that as human beings, across cultures, across centuries, we are fascinated with the stories of a knight in shining armor rescuing a princess being captured by a monster like a dragon. For example, in the Greek mythology, we have the story of the hero Perseus rescuing Andromeda from a sea monster. In the early church, we also have the legend of St. George, this dragon slayer, who slayed a dragon to rescue a princess held captured by the dragon and was about to be devoured by the dragon. And St. George, as we know, is venerated by Christians all the way from the Middle East all the way to England. And fast forward to the 20th century, we have Disney classics like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, and they, have, they were so well known that they have become an integral part of the pop culture, our public consciousness. So why, why do these stories really capture our imagination so much? Yes, we all love the happy ending of the prince and the princess living together, getting married happily, after, happily ever after. Of course, we all love these. But I think more fundamentally, in deep in the human psyche, we know that we all need to be rescued because we can't pull ourselves out from our own miseries. We know that we need a savior deep down. In, uh, in our heart. And I think that's where the brilliance of St. Paul comes in, who likens the relationship between Jesus and us, the church, as a husband and a wife, which is a beautiful imagery. This divine husband knew that his bride was held hostage by the force of evil and needed a lot of help. And he also knew that she couldn't get out of it just by her own power. So as St. Paul says, Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her. Jesus being handed over for her and uh, for, to sanctify her is precisely what we commemorate and celebrate at every Mass. When Jesus was handed over for the church, handed over to the evil people, he sacrificed himself on the cross. And because of this most selfless sacrifice, he was able to break the bond of sin and death for us. And in fact, Jesus' sacrifice already began at the Last Supper, where he transformed bread and wine into his body and blood. Jesus, at that time, as we, as we hear every, at every Mass, he gave thanks to the God the Father, and he offered to God the Father his body and blood in the, the appearance or appearances or the forms of bread and wine. And having his body and blood uh, being consecrated from bread and wine separately and uh, sequentially is a powerful reminder that his blood was poured out on the cross from his most precious body. And this goes to show that Jesus' sacrifice at the Last Supper and the sacrifice on the cross, this bloody sacrifice, are but one sacrifice, not two. And mystically speaking, this 
sacrifice, this supreme sacrifice, of course, was completed when Jesus died on the cross. Um, and it began at, at the Last Supper. But mystically, even at the Last Supper, the apostles, when they received the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the first time ever, they were already participating and sharing the fruit of Jesus' sacrifice. And this definitive event in our salvation history was so groundbreaking that it broke all the limits of time and space. It is a timeless event. And so we sitting here in the 21st century in California are also able to participate. How do we do this? We enter into his sacrifice by participating in the Mass, by offering to God the Father Jesus' body and blood with love and devotion, along with the priest. So when, he, when priest offers the body and blood of Christ, we in the pews also offer them to God the Father in love and devotion. And we also, in the meantime, offer up ourselves, our own sacrifices, our joy, our sorrow, all of these to our loving God the Father. And then when we receive the Eucharist later on in the Mass, we also share the fruit of Jesus' sacrifice as the apostles at the Last Supper. And what, the, what are the fruits? The fruits of Jesus' sacrifice is our sanctification and our salvation. And what we're receiving also very, very importantly is the complete Christ. We don't receive only a part of Jesus Christ. No, it doesn't matter how small of a fragment of the consecrated host we receive or how small of a drop of the precious blood that we receive. We receive an entire Jesus Christ into our, our body and our soul. And so like a husband who gives himself unreservedly to his wife, Jesus gives himself completely without holding back to his spouse, his mystical spouse, the church. And therefore, in the sacrament of Eucharist, St. Paul says that Jesus handed over for us to sanctify us. So in short, the Mass is the most important way that Jesus, the divine bridegroom of the church, sanctifies his mystical bride, which is all of us here. And in the Mass, we reunite ourselves with the sacrifice of Jesus for the remission for our sins. And in the Eucharist, in the reception of the Eucharist, also we die to sin and we, so that we may live for God in Christ Jesus. The goal is that we will one day be one with Jesus Christ in heaven unto eternity. Like a married couple, between Christ and us, we are no longer two but one, and we will never be separated. And one of the most important effects of the Eucharist, which we receive at the Mass, is that we are strengthened in our resolve to live an authentic Christian life and always be one with Jesus Christ. It's not easy, but it's possible with God's grace. And with the Eucharist, we can echo St. Paul's words, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, because we are literally receiving Christ into us, right? And so concretely, the effects of the Eucharist is that we are empowered by the Eucharist, not to be assimilated by the world, but rather we take a stance with 
Jesus Christ with the church, which means that we sometimes will take some unpopular positions in the eyes of the world. For example, we will, will uphold the sanctity of human life from the conception to the natural end, and we will uphold the dignity of marriage. It's indissoluble, exclusive, and between one man and one woman. And also, we will uphold the importance of common good over our individual goods and individual rights. And also, we'll uphold the centrality of in the institutional church in our spiritual life, including a regular sacramental life and in the church's common and public prayer, such as the Mass. And the list can go on and on and on. But all of these positions that a church holds are reasonable and they can be defended by a rational and compelling argument. I will highly recommend them, I will highly recommend you to read up on them. However, this doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to take a firm stand on the church's positions, the church's teachings. There will be a time when we will be tempted to take the easy way out and go with the world. And that is precisely why we need the grace from the Eucharist to strengthen us. And when we hold fast to the church's teachings, we are one with the church, and we are one with our Lord Jesus Christ. And inevitably, people will say to us, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Just as back in those days, people questioned Jesus' teaching on the Eucharist. And through the Eucharist, however, we are emboldened to say what Joshua said. As for me and for my household, we will serve the Lord. And through the Eucharist also, we are confirmed in the faith in Jesus Christ so that we can profess our faith like Peter did. Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.